0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5? Let me ask you a question on this Super Bowl Sunday. Are you a winner or a loser? Are you one who conquers or one who is conquered? Are you victorious or are you defeated? Are you an overcomer? Or an overcomee? Are you an overcomer or an overcomer? You know, believers are called by many names in scriptures. We're called Christians, sons, saints, servants, children, brothers. But we have another title given to us, and it's very exciting to me. It's in our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, says, The one who overcomes comes. We are overcomers. We are victors. We are conquerors. And in this passage, we want to look at three things about overcomers this morning. The person, the pattern, and the promises. First of all, the person. Who is an overcomer? Who fits that description? Look at verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is an overcomer? It's whoever is born of God, whoever has faith, whoever is a believer. If you are born of God, if you are born again you're an overcomer. You've heard of the born loser. Well, if you're born of God, you are the born winner. Now, the word overcomer is an interesting word. It's the Greek word that means to conquer, to have victory, to defeat. The Greeks had a goddess of victory. Her name was Nike. Nike. And that's the Greek word used here. Whoever is born of God, Nikes the world. The United States named its aerial missiles Nike missiles because they're conquerors. Some of you have tennis shoes with the swoosh. They're Nikes, they're victors. This same word is used by Jesus in John 16, He said, I have Niked the world. I have overcome. I have defeated. He is the world champion. And the one who is born again, the one who is born of God, is so identified with Jesus Christ that we are in him and he is in us. And if he is a conqueror, what are we? We are conquerors. You say, well, what is it that I'm a conqueror of? Well, he tells us in verse 4 and again in verse 5, it's the world. We are in a battle with the world. You say, sometimes it feels like me against the world. Well, it is. It's the world that we have to overcome. You say, well, why do we have to overcome the world. Well, because the world is designed to conquer you. Romans 12 2 says the world is defined is designed to conform you to its image, to squeeze you into its mold. Now, when John uses the word world here, he's not talking about the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the streams. When he uses this word world, he's talking about that mass of thoughts and ideas that originate from this godless world. He's talking about that philosophy that approaches life as if there is no God. In fact, earlier in this book, John told us what the world consists of. In 1 John 2.16, he says, All that is in the world... Is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, pleasures. The lust of the eyes, possessions. And the pride of life, prestige. And that really sums up the philosophy of this world. The world is telling you to live for pleasure, possessions, and prestige. The world tells us that the best things in life are things. The world wants to get our focus off of God and onto things. But the world is not just satisfied to distract us. It calls for our allegiance, it calls for our dedication, it calls for our devotion. That's why 1 John 2:15 draws the proverbial line in the sand. It says you cannot love God and love the world. It's an either-or proposition. They're polar opposites. This world is designed to steal your devotion, your dedication, your affection from God, and that's why we must overcome it. And the world is a formidable foe for several reasons. One reason is, it's not external, it's internal. The world is not just out there somewhere. The world is in here. It's the lust of my flesh, the lust of my eyes. Now Christians love to make the world external. And all my life I've heard things like, well, worldliness is wearing an earring. Worldliness is long hair. When I was a kid, worldliness was having long sideburns and a mustache. Well, if that was worldliness, you could defeat it by going to the barber. Worldliness is not external. Worldliness is internal. And second, it's a formidable foe because it's not impersonal, it's personal. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says Satan is the god of this world. He is controlling things. He is pulling the strings. This world is not just a mass of molecules. It's the kingdom of Satan who hates you, who is at war with you, who wants to destroy you if you're a child of God. And then third, the world is a formidable foe because it's not impotent, it's potent. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that in this world, the devil has the power of death. And there's nothing more potent than that. He uses it to control people. He uses death to convince us that this world is only temporal. And so, since there's nothing more to live for beyond death, we might as well live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry for what? For tomorrow you die. He uses death to control us. He uses death to scare us because Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 says that people are held in slavery by the fear of death all their lives. And then thirdly, he uses death to ultimately conquer us because once a person dies, he's got them. But having told you that the world is a formidable foe, let me remind you of something else. Though the world is not external, it's internal. First John 4.4 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And though the world is not impersonal, it's personal. First John 2.14 says, You have overcome the evil one. In fact, listen to the words of Romans 16.20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet whose feet your feet my size 10 and a half you see he may win a few skirmishes along the way but he's not going to win the war and then though the world is not impotent it's potent 1st corinthians 15:54 says death is swallowed up in victory And I love that passage because Paul says death is swallowed up in victory. And then in the next verse, he starts to taunt a little bit. And he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, I've always heard that bees can only sting twice. I've never tested that theory. I usually get out of there. But that's certainly true of death. Death. Death can only sting once. Death stung Jesus Christ, and it can't sting you. The stinger of death went deep into Jesus Christ, and he tore the stinger out of death. So it has no more venom left for you if you're a believer this morning. It can buzz around, it can irritate you, but it can't sting you anymore. It has no power. You see, despite the formidable nature of the enemy, John says, I'm a victor. I'm a super conqueror. I have overcome Satan, death, and the world. I have victory in Jesus Christ. And of course, the flip side of that is true as well. Apart from Jesus Christ, I'd be a loser. Everyone in this world who does not know Jesus Christ is defeated. Defeated by Satan, defeated by death, defeated by the world. But whoever is born of God overcomes, conquers, wins. That's the person who is an overcomer. Second, we'll see the pattern of an overcomer. What are the characteristics of an overcomer? What is evident... In his life? What is it that sets him apart from other people? Well, John points out three things. Number one is faith. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then flip over to verse 4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you believe you're born of God, if you're born of God, you overcome. So the believer is the one who overcomes. Verse 4 continues, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes. The first characteristic of an overcomer is faith. And that's fundamental. When Jesus died on the cross, he overcame Satan and his kingdom. That's why the resurrection is so important to us, because it identifies who the winner is. When Jesus was in the grave, the disciples didn't know he had won. In fact, they assumed he had lost. Easter Sunday morning is victory day. And when you received Jesus Christ, you know what happened? You received the winner. And so guess what you are? You're a winner. That victory is not based on your ability. That victory is is based on your faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians 2.6 says, He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places. Right now, you are already a victor. You already have your Super Bowl ring. It's settled. You're so identified with Jesus Christ by faith that you've already been raised. You're already seated in heavenly places. That's why verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, present tense. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, past tense. We overcome present tense. We have already overcome past tense. You see, in the past, positionally, the war is over. Satan has already been defeated. But in the present, practically, I have to walk in that victory. And both of those aspects involve faith. There's the faith expressed when I originally came to faith in Jesus Christ, and there is the faith that I express as I walk in, in that victory today. We all know that water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. But did you know that if you take hydrogen and oxygen and put it together, you get no reaction and you get no water. But if you take a small amount of platinum and put it in that stable mixture, things begin to happen. Rapidly, because that platinum is a catalyst. And the hydrogen and the oxygen unite, and a chemical reaction occurs that produces H2O. We need to understand the chemistry of faith. It is explosive. Faith is the catalyst that ignites the resurrection power of God in my life. That happened at the point of salvation, and it needs to happen in the daily battles of life. The first characteristic of an overcomer is faith. second characteristic of an overcomer is love. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born God of him. Literally that verse reads whoever loves the one who begets loves the one who is begotten. In other words, if you love God, you'll love his kids. And that's what John told us at the end of chapter 4, verse 20. He said if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not. See, You see, the real test of your love for God is loving his children. And that's why Satan keeps people as your main problem. Because he knows if he can keep you on that level, he will keep you from getting close to him or close to God. See, that's why you and your wife fight all the time. You say, well, I thought it was because we had personality differences. No, it's because Satan wants to keep you from being intimate with God. You wonder how I knew you fight all the time. See, that's why you can't stay home at Bedside Baptist or Mattress Methodist or Pillow Presbyterian and turn on the television and watch your favorite preacher and say... I love God. Because, see, you don't know you love God until you love his children. And you can't love them if you're not around them. You cannot love vertically unless that love is tested horizontally. And people will test you, won't they? See, that's intentional. God allows you to get involved with the problems and difficulties and frictions with other people because he wants to find out if you really love him. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Now, How do I know I love God? Verse 1 says, because I love his children. How do I know I love his children? Verse 2 says, because I love God. Now, he's talking in circles, isn't he? What's the point? Well, God has hooked this thing up so that unless Christians love one another, they can never be close to him. You see, it's a circle. And everybody's in the circle. If you look at the wiring diagram of love, it's wired between you and God, but it goes through everybody else in the body of Christ. And if you leave somebody else out, you break the circuit of love. Second characteristic of an overcomer is love. He loves God and he loves God's children. And then there's a third characteristic of an overcomer. And that's obedience. Look at the end of verse 2. When we love God and observe His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Overcomers keep God's commandments. They are marked out as people who do what God says. Now, did you notice in these verses, he's talked about faith, love, and obedience And they're all kind of tied together. In verse 1, faith is tied to love. In verses 2 and 3, love is tied to obedience so that they're all inseparable. And that's really been John's point throughout this letter. Faith is the doctrinal test. Love is the social test. Obedience is the moral test. Now, obedience is a relative term. If I ask you, do you obey? You may say, sure, I obey. But from my perspective, I may be saying, I don't think you are obeying. So the real question is, what does God call obedience? When God talks about obedience, what is he talking about? Well, let me suggest four aspects. Number one. God wants willing obedience. God wants it to be internal. God wants it to come from the heart. Deuteronomy 11.13 says, And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, God doesn't want obedience that's motivated by fear. He doesn't want obedience that desires to impress others. He doesn't want obedience that wants to please grandma. Romans 6.17 says, You became obedient from the heart. That's what God wants. He doesn't want superficial, external obedience. He wants willing, internal, from the heart obedience. Second aspect, he wants total obedience. Not partial, not incomplete, not 80%, not two out of three. God wants total obedience. It's said of Noah in Genesis 6.22, Thus did Noah according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. It's said of Joshua, Joshua eleven fifteen, 15. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. Can that be said of you? God wants total obedience. Third aspect. He wants constant obedience. Not every other day. Not off and on. Not when I'm in the mood. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just as you have always obeyed, continue. You say, well, I'm pretty good on Sundays, and uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays aren't bad. No. God wants constant, continuous Obedience, And then the fourth aspect, he wants joyful obedience. You say, well, how can I have total, constant obedience from the heart and be joyful too? Well, you can't. That's why 2 Corinthians 9-7 says God loves a cheerful giver. The command is to give. The response is obedience. The attitude is joy. And that's what God loves. Listen to me. Disobedience is wrong. But external, unwilling, partial, inconsistent, grudging obedience is wrong also. God wants willing, total, constant, joyful obedience. And then John adds at the end of verse 3, And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not heavy. Now, we don't tend to look at the Christian life this way. We often say, boy, that stuff God has me do is hard. I don't think I can do it. Well, if John heard you say that, he would say that you and God aren't talking about the same thing. Because God's commandments are not burdensome. Why not? Well, I think I could make a pretty long list of reasons, but let me just give you three in the context of love. Number one, they're established by love. God's commandments are given out of love. He's not making up commandments just to be bossy. They're designed to protect you. They are designed to bless you. They are designed with your best in mind. His commandments are driven by love. I'm sure most of you that have a young child have said at one time or other, don't touch the stove. Now, to a young child, that may sound burdensome. He may be saying, I just can't go through life without touching a hot stove. I mean, what would my life be like if I don't get to do that? But see, even though he doesn't understand it, that commandment is given out of love. And when you understand that God loves you, you won't mind following his instructions because you understand that they're given out of love. God has nothing to gain by making your life miserable. God gives you guidelines out of love. And even when I don't understand them, they're not burdensome because I know he loves me. Second, they're fulfilled by love. Have you ever noticed that most of God's commandments involve somebody else? You shall not murder others. You shall not lie to others. You shall not steal from others. You shall not commit adultery against others. You shall not covet what others have. They're designed to relate to others. And that's why Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the phrase, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, you don't need to walk around with a list of commands in your pocket. You just need to walk around with God's love in your heart. God's commandments are not burdensome because they're fulfilled by love. And then a third reason that they're not burdensome is that they're motivated by love. In Genesis chapter 29, Laban told Jacob that he could have the hand of his daughter Rachel in marriage if he would work for him for seven years. There's a great verse in Genesis 29, 20. Here's what it says. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Seven years he worked, and it wasn't burdensome because he was in love. You see, he knew it was going to be worth it. And when you love God, obeying him is not burdensome. When you realize that it's going to be worth it, his commandments are not burdensome. The reason some of us don't enjoy the Christian life is that we spend so much time fighting obeying God that we never get around to enjoying obeying God. Now, one of the reasons David is called a man after God's own heart is expressed in Psalm 119. That's the longest chapter in the Bible. And in that chapter, David says things like this, I love thy law. I have rejoiced in the way of thy commandments. I shall delight myself in thy statutes. I shall run the way of thy commandments. Thy statutes are my songs. Now can you imagine sitting down and putting the traffic laws to song? Can you imagine somebody saying, I love the traffic laws? You see, most of us look at the traffic laws as burdensome. They're holding me back from getting where I want to be. But that's not the way it is with God's commandments. They are established by love, they are fulfilled by love, and they are motivated by love. Now, I've heard that some people only obey the traffic laws when they see a patrol car. I've heard that. Some Christians only obey God on Sunday or when they think another Christian is watching. We need to stop fighting against God's commandments because we're missing God's best. You know what David says in Psalm 119? He says, They are sweeter than honey... And I love them more than fine gold. They're better than dessert, and they're better than riches. They are not burdensome. And that's the attitude that reflects the pattern of an overcomer. He's set apart by faith, love, and obedience. And then third, we want to look at the promises. What promises are made to an overcomer? What is the prize for overcoming? Now, John doesn't tell us in this book, but he does tell us in another book that he wrote, and that's the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are written to seven churches, and in those chapters, and again a little later in the book, he makes some promises to overcomers. Let me tell you what they are. Just let me catalog them for you. The first is in Revelation 2-7. He says, To him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Now, there are two trees specifically mentioned in the Garden of Eden. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other is the tree of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out of the garden so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever. In fact, it tells us God put... Cher- cherubim there with flaming swords to block their way to the tree of life. God didn't want them to eat and live forever in a sinful condition. You know where the tree of life is today? It's in paradise. It's explained more fully in Revelation 22. Two, and, and Jesus says the overcomer will get to eat from that tree in the paradise of God. What's that mean? We're going to live forever. heaven. Revelation 2.11 says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the first death? Physical. What's the second death? It's spiritual and eternal. The overcomer may die once, but he won't be affected by eternal death. Revelation 2.17 says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what's manna? That's that Bread that came out of heaven in the wilderness, that angel food cake that came down every morning. He says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, He is the living bread that comes down out of heaven. He is the manna. So we are going to feast on the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. We're going to have sweet fellowship with Him. People often ask me, what's heaven going to be like? Don't worry about it. Jesus is going to be there. Then he goes on and says, I'm going to give you, if you're an overcomer, I'm going to give you a white stone. I don't know what that is. That's mother of pearl or diamond or whatever. I'm going to give you a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him who receives it. I think a lot of times when we think about heaven, we think about it being rather impersonal. We're all going to be up there totally righteous, just kind of milling around. This is a very personal thing. He says, I'm going to give you a stone, I'm going to write on it a name that nobody else knows but you and Jesus. He's going to give you a new affectionate name, and it's going to be between you and Him. That's personal, that's special. Revelation 2.26 says, To him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. Jesus has the authority over the nations. He's going to give it to you. If you're an overcomer, you will rule with Christ. And then he adds this, I will give him, verse 28, the morning star. Now what's the morning star? Well, in Revelation 22.16, Jesus said, I am the bright and morning star. And so Jesus is going to give you himself. I'll be his and he'll be mine. Revelation 3.5 says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now, that's God's color. That's the color of righteousness. That's the color of holiness. He's going to clothe us in his righteousness. And then he says, I won't blot his name out of the book of life. Now, in the first century, many kings blotted people's names out of their registry for criminal activity. Many Christians got blotted out because of their Christian faith. So Jesus says, even though kings may blot you out, even though the world may blot you out, I will never blot you out of my book. And then he adds this, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, Father, angels, Dan Green. He will confess me as his own before the Father and before the angels. Revelation 3.12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Now it's interesting, when you get to Revelation 21.22, you find there is no temple In the New Jerusalem, instead, God and Christ are the temple. So, God and Christ are the temple, and you'll be a pillar in that temple. What an analogy. And many times in that day, they would write names on the pillars as as statements of possession. And Jesus goes on to say, I will write upon you the pillar, the name of God, the name of the city of God, and my new name. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. Wow. The promise to the overcomer is you'll sit with Jesus on his throne, and it must be a big throne because he's sitting on his Father's throne. And what is the throne? That's the place of exaltation and glory. And then when you come to Revelation 21, it mentions in that chapter a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. It says in verse 5, he'll make all things new. And then he makes a promise in verse 7. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit these things. What things? All the new things we will inherit. And then he adds this, and this may be my favorite of all. He says, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. That's personal. That's not grouped together. That's not the big group. That's personal. I'll be your God. You will be my son, singular. I will be a son, and I will inherit all things. So what are the promises to the overcomer? I will live forever in paradise. With no fear of the second death, I will feast on the presence of Jesus, I'll have a unique name known only to me and God. I'll rule the nations. I'll have the morning star, Jesus Christ. I'll be clothed in holiness. God will never forsake me. Jesus Christ will confess me before the Father. I'll be a pillar in God's temple. I'll wear his name, sit on his throne, be his son, and inherit all things. Are you a winner? Are you a conqueror? Are you an overcomer? You are, if you're born of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to keep this in perspective today. If you end up celebrating a Super Bowl victory today, that amounts to nothing compared to the victory Jesus Christ has already won for you. We accept that by faith and we walk in that by faith. We are conquerors over this world. And you and I need to start walking that out in practical ways in our lives. Before we close, I'm going to ask Sarah to stand up. Where are you at, Sarah?